Father God, you are great and you are worthy to be praised. And to tell us that, you wrote a book. And now the rest of our time this morning is going to be spent asking why this book is so great. Why is this book so amazing? Why is this book sufficient? Why is scripture sufficient for the Christian to live their lives? And so I pray that you'd grant to me strength, wisdom, Father, keep me from error. And I pray that you'd help me and my friends understand the realities that we're looking at today, Father. These are not small things. It is impossible for us to understand them without your divine strength and grace. Come here, Father, and help us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. That's the second half of Psalm 19. And it is talking, David is talking about Scripture. He's talking about the Word of God. And when we refer to Scriptures at Risen Hope, we're obviously talking about the 66 books of the Old in New Testament, written by men who were guided by the Spirit of God. In Second Peter, it literally says they were carried along by the Spirit of God as they wrote. And that's this book, the Bible. God's Word given to man, what He has revealed to humanity. And David says here, this book is more to be valued than fine gold, and that it is sweeter than honey. More to be valued than fine gold and sweeter than honey. He is saying, since gold is the highest value I can think of, and honey is the sweetest substance I could put in my mouth, God's word to me is better than all of those things. It is better than all of those things. And so here's a hard question right at the start of our time together today. Is this your experience with the Bible? Is this your experience with the scriptures. Do you feel this way when you read the word? I'm not asking if you're encouraged if you see a verse pop up on Facebook or some social networking site. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, do you desire it more than gold? Is it sweeter to you than honey? Is it better, to, better for you than anything else this world can offer you? Does it taste better? Because that's what David is talking about here. That's what he's communicating, and that's what we're focusing on today, the sufficiency of Scripture. So last week we started a series that we're looking at the four pillars of risen hope. Centrality of Christ, sufficiency of Scripture, uh, family of faith, and love where you live. And we're on week two, so we're looking at the Bible. Last week we looked at um, the centrality of Jesus Christ. Jesus is everything to us. He's the foundation Everything we do here is about Jesus Christ, Him, period. And today we're looking at sufficiency of Scripture. So what does it mean for us to embrace this book as sufficient for the Christian, for our lives? 
So if you have your Bibles, please grab them. We're going to turn to Luke 16, verse 19. One of the ways we're looking at these pillars is we're looking at parables told by Jesus. If, if these four main things are main things to us, then we, we really would expect to see Jesus talking about them, Jesus embracing them, Jesus loving them. And so we're looking at this parable here, starting with verse 19 of Luke 16. Here's verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, the rich man, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham responds to him and says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Jesus tells this parable about two men. One simply called the rich man, and one is called Lazarus. And what he's really doing is he's setting before us two massive paradigms, two, two pathways, two ways of looking at the world, worldviews. And if you read this on the surface, you're probably going to say, well, the distinction here is clear, Jeremy. The distinction is one's a rich man, and the other's not. He's poor. That's the distinction here. And that's a true distinction. That's actually in the text. But that's not the main point. Those facts, one being rich and one being poor, are, are designed to communicate the two worldviews. They're not the two worldviews that I'm looking at. The key is in verse 30. When the rich man who's in Hades, he's in torment, says to Abraham that if someone rises from the dead and goes to my brothers, they're going to repent. They will repent. So the difference between the rich man and Lazarus isn't their bank account mainly. The rich man lived a wicked life and he refused to repent to God. He refused to trust in forgiveness from God. That's the main issue. That's the main issue here. That's why he sees repenting to God as the only solution for his brothers to escape the torment he's now experiencing. So I want to listen to the parable again, pick it apart a little bit, and see if we can get underneath all that Jesus is saying here with that framework of knowing what the main 
problem is with the rich man in place. So it begins like this. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So this rich man is clothed in, in purple and fine linen. He's wealthy. He has money. He eats sumptuously every day. So every single day for this man is a feast. And he has so much food that those who do not have food know exactly where to get it. They go to his gate where his trash is, and they pick through his trash. Lazarus is one of these men. He is poor and he's afflicted. It says he's covered with sores, which is a contrast. The rich man is covered in purple and fine linen, and Lazarus only has sores to cover him. And to make it even worse, to make it even more humiliating, the dogs are coming and licking his open wounds. He has nothing. Nothing. And Lazarus' entire life at this gate, trying to eat whatever falls from this man's table, that's it for him. He's trying to survive. He's picking through the trash, hoping that there's food here. Now notice, the rich man isn't inviting Lazarus in. The rich man isn't sharing with him some of the surplus he has. He clearly has, if he can eat wastefully and wear rich clothes. He's not trying to cover him with any clothing. He's not trying to get him basic medicine. None of that is in this parable. The rich man's focused on one thing in this parable. Himself. He is focused on himself. He wants, before he dies, his best life right now. He wants it as good as it possibly can be. He wants zero uh, justice or generosity coming out of him. He just wants to be comforted in his life. And he has no concern at all about eternity. None. But to be fair, Lazarus also is thinking about himself here. But not in the same way. He doesn't know how he's going to live day to day. And the only food he has here is at this gate. So Lazarus, if you can conceive of this, as Jesus is telling the story, he wants pictures to pop in people's minds. That's why you tell stories. And if you can conceive of this, Lazarus has no hope in this world. None. The, only, the, the world has afforded him nothing. The only hope he, he has must come from outside this world. It must come from God's hand if he's going to get any good. And that's the very first thing we see in the following verses. If you look at Luke 16, 22 and 23, it says, The poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also dies and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifts up his eyes. He sees Abraham far off, and he sees Lazarus right by him. Lazarus, Jesus says, this poor man, he reminds us, dies. And this rich man dies ever. And so both these characters die, which, just a sidebar, this is really important. Both the characters die. Every character in this parable dies. And the reason why is because every human being will die one day. Every human being is going to die. It is appointed unto, one, unto man once to die and then the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 we're all going to die, just like Lazarus and the rich man. That's going to happen to us, each of us. And so what that tells us is that no one's going to escape this. The stakes 
could not be any higher for us getting this parable right. Every human being is going to be pressed into the reality of eternity, which means every decision we make has infinite consequences, has eternal significance. There is not a decision you will make, no matter how trivial you may think it is, that doesn't have implications that matter in eternity because you will live eternally. You will live forever. And so will everyone else that you meet. And one of the reasons, though not the main reason he's telling this story, but one of the, one of the reasons he's telling this parable is for us to understand and feel the weight of that. He, Jesus wants us to feel the weight of it because most people don't feel that at all. Most people do not feel that weight of eternity at all. Like a, a child, for example... You can tell them over and over and over that it's a bad idea to eat 10 Kit Kat bars in a row. You can tell them, don't do it, don't do it. But all they're thinking about is the flavor of chocolate on their tongue. They're thinking seconds in front of them. And if I'm real with you, adults are the same. In general, we follow this path. We say, what I want in my life right now is what I think is best. What I think I will enjoy the best. I want the most comfort. I want the most joy in my life right now. And I refuse to believe that there's consequences beyond this life. And Jesus is pleading with them here and us 2,000 years later. Don't make that mistake. Don't make that mistake. So Lazarus dies and the angels carry him, his broken, weary, sore-covered body to the side of Abraham, the father of the Hebrew faith, and really everyone who's a believer, everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, he's our father as well. He carries Lazarus to this paradise, this comforting place with peace and joy. And the rich man dies, and he's not carried anywhere. He's sent to a place of torment. It says in Hades, the place of the dead, being in torment. That's where the rich man ends up. It's where he goes. This parable uses very stark language to describe this. So just pardon me a second. I'm going to give you two different things that we need to clue in on as this place is described. First, this concept of torment and anguish is really clear in this text. I don't think Jesus could make it any clearer. This place has conscious pain and suffering. This man is asking for someone's finger to be dipped into water and placed on his tongue. What kind of pain would you experience where that is relief? This is very clear. It's not a place anyone ever wants to be. Secondly, this place is described as being far off. Abraham's far off, far off from Abraham, far off from comfort. In fact, we'll see in a second here that there's this great chasm that's been fixed here, which tells us there's no way out. There's no way out. Whatever the literal interpretation of this location is, one thing is clear. You cannot leave. You cannot leave this place ever. It is untraversable. There is no way to get across that chasm. And the rich man knows this, which is exactly why he does what he does next. It says, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, 
Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And then he says, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now, what is surprising about this section here, this question, this request, isn't that it's, is that it, it, it isn't this request. Can you have mercy on me by allowing me to come to you? He doesn't ask that. He doesn't ask that. He doesn't say, I'm sorry for what I've done. I repent. I was wrong and wicked my entire life. That's not his request. He doesn't ask to leave the torment, which is strange. But rather he says, you know, Lazarus, dip your finger in water, come over, put it on my tongue so that I can have some relief. Why does he ask for this? Well, the, the only logical question, the only logical explanation for his question is that he actually doesn't feel any regret or remorse. He doesn't, he's not concerned. There is zero mourning over his sin which is an important point to make because I think a lot of times we think heaven is a place you go to if you don't want to go to hell. This guy doesn't want to go to hell. But he also doesn't want to go to heaven. Heaven is reserved for people who want God. That is what the definition of heaven is. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, 11. That's heaven. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want God. He just wants to be comforted. After a lifetime of ignoring God, the greatest reality in the universe, the source of all good, all joy, all hope, all love, does he want God now? No, the answer is no. He wants pain mitigation is what he wants. He wants to limit the amount of pain he's experiencing. Think about it. He's not asking the kind of question that would say, what kind of evil in me? would warrant the creator of the universe, the one who made me, to grant to me this reciprocity, this punishment? What kind of evil in me would cause that? That's not the question he's asking. So Abraham's response is like, wait a second, bro. Do you remember your life? Do you remember your life? You wanted it all. Right then, you wanted, you you loved yourself more than anything else in the world and you sought comfort as your highest treasure. And so you got your good things. And Lazarus, in his life, had nothing. And that nothing, by implication, clearly caused him to realize that every day and every morsel of food was a gift from God. How else would he get it? He had nothing. And he's now here with Abraham being comforted after a lifetime of pain and suffering. So the rich man moves to his second line of questioning. And this is where we begin to see why this parable is key to understanding the sufficiency of Scripture. It says here, And he said, this is the rich man, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So still thinking pain mitigation. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, your brothers, hear them, Moses and the prophets. 
The rich man knows nothing can cross the chasm between him and Lazarus. He knows that now. That's very clear. But maybe, just maybe, Lazarus can rise from the dead and go back and warn his family and stop his brothers on the path that they're on. Five brothers who apparently are in the same situation this rich man was. And now all that he can think about right now is how do I get them out? I don't want them to experience a a single second of this place. It's too horrible. So he asks Abraham, his father Abraham, send Lazarus to them because they don't know. They have no idea what this place, and if you send Lazarus to them, they'll repent. Uh, To which Abraham responds, they actually do know enough to repent. They have Moses and the prophets. And what he's talking about there is the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, Moses, and the prophets, the prophetic writings, they know enough to repent. They know that if God is truly just and truly righteous, he cannot tolerate sin. It's against his nature and his character, and he will most certainly visit justice upon them. For instance, in one of the prophets, Daniel 12, says this, there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame in everlasting contempt. And then he says with a massive note of hope, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is Daniel, one of the prophets. This is what Abraham is referring to, what Jesus through Abraham in this parable is talking about. He's saying this isn't a secret. You knew this was coming. You knew it was coming. God has not hidden this from you at all. It's in Scripture, and they have the Scriptures. They have everything that they need to know this. But the rich man, of course, disagrees, and he responds like this. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Moses responds to him and says, if they do not hear, or Abraham responds to them and says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, both of these statements, the one from the rich man and the one from Abraham, are staggering. Um, First, the rich man understands that his brothers already have Scripture. He knows that. He gets that. He had Scripture too. But in his mind, that's not sufficient. That's not enough. They need, what they need, Abraham, is they need real data. They need real evidence. They need a miracle. They need to see something that would cause them to believe. And if someone like Lazarus over here would rise from the dead, that would be enough. That would, that's his argument. But Abraham knows something the rich man doesn't know or clearly hasn't learned yet, and that is this. The main problem with the rich man's heart and his brother's hearts is not a lack of evidence. That isn't the case at all. The main issue with the rich man's heart is that he doesn't want God. He does not want God. There's no amount of evidence that will cause him to believe none. Evidence isn't the issue. They don't want God, which brings him, Abraham, to the final heavy statement in the parable. He says, 
If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's a staggering statement. Because I think a lot of us would say, if I saw someone die and come back from the dead, I would believe them. But he's saying that's not, that's not sufficient. The most sufficient thing in the world is the scriptures. They have them. So is this true? Is what Abraham is saying in, the, saying in this parable true? Would resurrection be proof enough? Do you remember the story where Jesus rises from the dead and he's on his way to Emmaus. He finds these two disciples on the way. You guys remember this story, right? They're walking and talking with him. They don't know who he is. They're just hanging out with this guy. It's the risen Lord of the universe and they can't tell it's him until this scene. Luke 24. And he said to them, Jesus, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says, stunningly, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted them to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's amazing. He's Jesus. He just, I'm Jesus. I'm alive. He doesn't do that. He takes out his Bible. And he says, we're going we're gonna to have a Bible lesson today. I'm going to show you who I am. To explain his own resurrection, Jesus doesn't appeal to plain evidence. He appeals alone. He appeals to Scripture. Scripture is the pathway for them to believe. It is the route that they have to take in order to understand who he is. So without Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus and anyone else he's resurrected is meaningless. It has no value. Scripture is what tells us, the Word of God is what tells us who he is and why it's significant, which is a big deal because it means that there is something more convincing than evidence, than miraculous evidence in this book. There is something more powerful in this book that can change worldviews than in any other evidence that you could supply. So here's the question. What is it about the Bible? What is it about the Word of God that makes it so sufficient, makes it so powerful? And I want to clarify, in the context of the parables, the stakes can't be higher. Jesus has this parable. He's clearly talking about how Moses and the prophets are sufficient to bring people to repentance. And he's using the paradigm of eternity. Eternity is at stake. You need to get this right. We need to get this right as a people. Daniel says that the resurrection, humanity will be divided into two categories. Some are going to rise to everlasting life and others are going to rise to shame and everlasting contempt. So Abraham says, you need to know, or Jesus says through Abraham, you need to know Moses and the prophets are sufficient. This is not a trivial thing. And so why? Why do we say scripture is sufficient? There are three ways I want to look at this. Three dimensions about God's word in the life of a believer that make this book completely sufficient for everything in our life, for how we approach everything. Three foundations in the Christian life. Number one is this. Scripture is God's instrument of salvation. It is his instrument of salvation. At the center of the narrative of this book is a truth we call the gospel. Everything in this book points to the gospel. Everything in this book 
ultimately resolves in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's the gospel. That's Scripture's main message. Paul says that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This instrument and its message, when it's proclaimed and communicated, is how God saves people. That's how he redeems people from everlasting shame and contempt. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about it as being a light, the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is a light that penetrates the heart of an unbeliever and awakens them to the glory of God. First in the gospel and then in who he is, in all the things that this Bible says about him. And the only way that that can happen, the only way that someone can can actually be redeemed is through the main message in Scripture. That's God's instrument of salvation. That's not the only thing that Scripture does. That's not the only thing Scripture is sufficient for. Scripture also sanctifies the believer. It also conforms us into the image of Christ Jesus. It is God's instrument of sanctification. Our conformity into Jesus doesn't happen automatically, and it doesn't happen accidentally. We are conformed into the image of Christ through God's Word, through God's Scripture. And I don't mean that there's rules in the book that we learn to follow. That There are rules in this book that we should follow. That's not what I'm referring to. What I'm saying is that Scripture shows us who God really is. It shows us who He really is, His character, what He's like, His pursuits, His passions, His purposes in this world. And when we read it, when we actually read it, not like a newspaper, but like our life counted on it, when we read it and we press our soul into this book, we begin to look and sound like its author. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And then it says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we, as, as, we, as we read the Scriptures, as we press our hearts into the Scriptures and behold the glory of God, the glory of the Lord in the Scriptures, we are transformed. There's a transformation that is happening there. And we are transformed into the image of Christ Jesus And it happens one degree at a time. It happens in difficult stages. There are setbacks. There's advances. But one degree at a time, we start to look like Jesus Christ. The knowledge of God blows and fans on the embers of faith in our hearts. And we come alive to look like Christ. The only way we can look like Jesus is by spending time with him. It's the only way. And this is how we do it. We come to him in prayer. We read who he is. We read about God's purposes in human history through this book. And we are conformed into his image. That's number two. So salvation, scripture accomplishes that through the gospel. Sanctification, the spirit accomplishes that through scripture. Us reading it and learning about Christ and who he is. And the third is this. Scripture sustains the believer to the very end. 
being real with you, because this is probably one of the ones that is the hardest to get. We can understand theologically those other two, but this is so critical. God's word sustains the believer, and he will bring you through to the end. We do not sustain ourselves, nor are we sustained by anything in our lives, but by God, and how he sustains the believer is through the words of Scripture. This book is filled with promises that are meant for you, for you individually promises that God, the creator of the universe, has made. It is filled to the brim with them, and they are directed toward our lives, our hearts. And one of those promises, one of the greatest, sweetest, most glorious promises is that he will keep you. He will keep you through all the way to the end. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is certain that this is going to happen if your faith is in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 says, The testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. That's awesome. <laughs> Guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful. That's the foundation that that word sustain sits on. God isn't faithful. There shouldn't be a word like that in there. But it's in there because God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship by, of his son. And then John 10, from Jesus' lips, this promise is one of the sweetest in the entire Bible. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one, will snatch them out of my hand. Why is that, Jesus? Why can no one snatch them out of your hands? I'll tell you why. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand, or out of the Father's hand, and then he says, I and the Father are one. We're in this together. You're not going to be lost. You will be sustained to the end. The Christian life stands or falls on this reality. Do you trust Christ to keep you? Do you trust him to believe or do you trust him to be faithful to you and hold you to the end? Or have you believed in vain? Do you, do you just see this as a ticket out of hell? For the Christian for the real, the person who trusts in Jesus, the Christian, someone who's seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, they read this promise in Scripture and they believe them and they hold on to them. In fact, they will stake their lives on them. That's what God's faithfulness does. And if I can just be real with you, um, when your life is falling apart, and everything is crashing down around you, this truth will be the sweetest truth in the world, that you belong to Jesus, and he won't lose you. He's not going to lose you. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to prepare you for a future day, because one day you're going to get a call from a doctor, and they're going to tell you, I'm sorry. It's too late. And there's nothing we can do. 
And I want, in that moment, I want you not to curse God, not to blame God, not to run from God. I want you to run to him and say to him, I need you now more than I've ever needed you before. I need you. And then I want you to read this book and Jesus to say to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You belong to me. And he will say that to you. That's what this book tells us. And that sustaining reality will will hold you together as you walk through the deepest possible suffering. And he will get you through to the end. Got Lazarus through to the end. He will get you through to the end. The reason that can happen supernaturally in the life of the believer is because of what the Bible is, what Scripture is, what God's Word is. I want you to listen to how Peter describes God's Word in his first letter. Listen to the language that he uses to describe this and the comparison he makes. 1 Peter 1, 23-25, You have been born again, Christians, not by perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh, all flesh... All of humanity is like grass. And all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But guess what? The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, the gospel. He's talking about scripture. He's talking about the message of the Bible. And he's quoting Isaiah 40. He's saying that this is the word. When Isaiah prophesied about this 700 years before Peter wrote this letter, this is the word he was talking about, the word of the Lord that remains forever. There is no other truth, no other truth in the universe like this, like the truth of Scripture. I know it looks like an ordinary book. It is an ordinary book. I mean, it is a book, but it is not ordinary at all. Its meaning, its words, its sentences, when they form ideas and these concepts, these meanings, that reality is imperishable. It is living and abiding. It will never go away. So here's here's the deal today. This is the purpose of, of this pillar, the purpose of this message. We have this book. It was written by the creator of the universe. God wrote this. He wrote a book, and he desires for us to read it. He desires for us to encounter him in its pages. There is nothing else like this in the world. Nothing like this book in the world. When you read it, you see God. See, these people who live with Jesus, he's telling this parable, They may have seen Jesus for five minutes, ten minutes, an hour. Some of them that walked with him, maybe a year they hung out with him. And that was it. But we get to see him every day. They didn't have all of this, the complete scripture. We get to see him every single day. It can save an unbeliever, this book. It can sanctify a sinner, this book. And it can sustain a sufferer. And one of the reasons that the sufficiency of Scripture is so important to us at Risen Hope is because most of us in this room, I would wager, 
even if it was just for a second, have tasted what I've just described. You know I'm telling the truth. You've tasted it. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good in this book. And that's the bottom line for Risen Hope. I mean, we, we don't exist because we like religion. We don't exist because uh, we find this recreational or uh, morally necessary. This is not why the church exists. Risen Hope exists because we're in love with God. We're in love with him. And we want more of him, and this book invites us into that reality. The only reason we can see his goodness in this book, the only reason at all that we have this book available to us is that because 2,000 years ago, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son, the image of God, became a man, just like the words of God became a book. The image of God became a man. And the reason the gospel has its power is because Jesus Christ, the most glorious being who has ever lived and whoever will live, died to secure for me and for you this book's truths, this book's promises. So my, my plea really this morning is really simple. It's this, it's that we as a body of believers, and anyone who hears me, we as a body of believers would give ourselves to this book. That we would be willing to be gripped by it and let it guide and govern every aspect of our life. Not just words and sentences, not just words and prepositions and phrases. I'm talking about, or, or even just the enamor of theology. That's not what I'm talking about. Or a fascination with Greek or Hebrew. I'm talking about that we would be gripped by the God that this book shows us very clearly. He's there. And we just need to be smitten by his beauty. We need to be in love with him, fall in love with him by reading this book. His splendor and his glory are displayed in this book. And you have, if you have one of these, Everything you need to see that glory. Everything you need to see that glory. And so my prayer is that we would all, we would all, all of us, joyfully say with David that more to be desired are the words of God than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also is this book than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That's my prayer for us today. So let's pray and worship some more. Father God, as we take communion, as we recognize the cost that was spent on the cross, and as we contemplate that that cross created the reality of the gospel at the heart of this book, we would recognize that when God speaks to man, it is not a small thing. Our lives depend on it. Praise be to God, you didn't leave us in darkness, you stepped into the darkness and you spoke. And we have those words available to us. Second Timothy 3.16 tells us that this book is capable of doing everything the Christian needs in their lives. That in this book, we can learn about you. We can come to trust you and be saved. In this book, we can be sanctified and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ by pressing into the reality, the knowledge of God. 
And this book will keep us. Your promises to us in this book will keep us to the very last breath that we breathe. I pray that 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 massiveness, the immensity of that would not be lost on our hearts today. But Father, we would embrace that truth in delight in your word. We would delight ourselves in you. We would be overwhelmed by who you are, Father God. And we would do that through the sufficiency, the absolute sufficiency of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.